Traditionally, we view missions as something we only do in foreign lands. But today's churches have a new challenge. Our neighborhoods are filled with diverse cultures of Americans in desperate need for the gospel of Jesus and life in his church. Most significantly, they need a gospel and a church that are faithful both to the scriptures and the cultural context of America. All right, I was anxious to get going. I was excited about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 3. We're going to be there. If you're with us for the first time and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. In the back, there's a stack of Bibles, and you are welcome to take one of those and have it as a gift from us to you. So go ahead and feel free to grab that if you'd like to right now. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read these two verses out loud with each other, and, uh, and then we'll get going. So you ready? Here we go. Let's read together. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. Uh, we thank you for those who are here. Uh, we um, we invite your spirit in to minister to us as we as we uh, worship Jesus. Lord, we thank you for those churches who are gathering right now as we are that are opening your word and um, we're singing songs to Jesus and uh, worshiping in his name, glorifying him by what they do and by what they say. And we pray that you would meet with them. God, we pray that you'd meet with us. God, in this particular passage of scripture, as we continue this remission series, we pray that you would help us to see something different, something that we have yet to see, that you'd illumine that to our hearts but uh, and also our minds. And God, that you would challenge us uh, to be missionaries, you challenge us to be evangelists, Lord, that we would be on mission with you and see that as that thing which you've called us to do. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen and amen. You know, some people are just natural evangelists. You ever, I mean, you know anybody that can walk in any venue, whether you're going in the McDonald's to get a quarter pounder with cheese, large fry, and a diet. I love McDonald's. Starbucks, uh, they might be at a sports activity. They could be walking from point A to point B around, just going to the mailbox, and I don't know how they do it. They just seem to enter into conversations with people that they don't know, talking about Jesus without even trying. You, you all know anybody like that? I mean, a few of you, yeah. I mean, I'm hearing the names of the people in the crowd, and I, of course, I know them, and I would tell you, um, I mean, I look at that and I say, man, I wish I could be like that, um, and those that I know, especially those of, uh, of you here that I know that are seemingly natural evangelists, I look at you in, you know, just the ordinary settings of your life and how you enter these gospel conversations with people just talking about Jesus. And I know that you would admit you don't know how you do it. It's just how you're gifted. It's just part of the life that you live, that you're able to to um, to segue in from a conversation about football or cooking or whatever into talking about Jesus. Uh, I have to confess, I am absolutely not like that. I'm not a natural evangelist. Um, Perhaps you are not a natural evangelist either, but that doesn't give any of us um, a reason to say that we aren't called to be 
evangelists because the Bible says that that we are, which brings us to remission. We are in a series called remission. And our purpose in this series is to rethink the, the church and her mission. We're not trying to redefine what the church is supposed to do. We are um, in these few weeks just looking at it, forcing ourselves to look at it a little differently. Four weeks ago, we started with this idea of of imitating Jesus, that the way that we take the message of the gospel and best fit it into the culture, the time and day that we live in is simply first and foremost by looking at Jesus and what he did. And then in week two, we talked about the gospel and the culture, um, the context part. And the point of that sermon was simply this. In order for me to use the gospel, I've got to know my culture. And I challenge you go out and just look at the culture, interact with people that you don't know. Try to enter in a conversation, observing people and seeing what people who are around you are already doing. And, that, and do that without even trying to bring them to faith or, or uh, um, convert them or even say Jesus. And then last week um, we entered this conversation about evangelism. About the Bible says that we are to be on mission with God. More than that, the Bible says that we are supposed to share our faith, that we are evangelists. And we're going to finish part two of that today. First um, Peter three, verse 15. Now, this first verse says, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, this this verse deserves a little bit of context. As we look at the, the book of First Peter, you know, Peter is writing to dispersed Gentile Christians who are in several different Roman provinces um, scattered about. And he's exhorting them in the richness of the faith that they've been given. I mean, there's some great words here in uh, in in First Peter. And I would tell you, Peter's like one of my favorite apostles. He's one of my favorite because, you know, he messes up and he redeems himself. God redeems him. Um, but Peter's a simple fisherman, a simple fisherman that's been changed by being around Jesus. And he writes this beautiful letter. Listen to some of these words. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He says to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Aren't those beautiful words? He's exhorting us in this inheritance that we've been given as as believers, as partakers in this great gospel that God gives us by his grace. He continues in, in chapter one. Um, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He's exhorting us, challenging us, really. You've been called out of the life that you were living into a, a holy life. And because God is holy, he's perfect without fault. He wants you to be holy as well. Holy, not meaning perfect, but holy, meaning separate, um, separate apart from the world that you came up in. And then we cross over into chapter two. And as we studied last week, Peter gave us these beautiful Beautiful words describing our identity as a church. He says, you're a chosen race, a holy people, a royal priesthood that you might show forth in your lives the glory that God has in in the world. And I take from this that he's God has called us to be on mission with him. That's what Peter is exhorting us to do. And the interesting thing in all of this writing is Peter is writing to a people that are 
suffering. They're in persecution. Every time I read First Peter, I can't help but liking it to liken it to the, the time and the day that we live in. You ever notice how there's no problem that you have in life with anybody until you make your faith public? The minute that you say the name Jesus, the minute that you uh, change a conversation from talking about pizza or basketball or how the weather is and you enter into a spiritual conversation, um, walls go up. People, I mean, they look at you weird and some may even mock you, chastise you, talk about you behind your back or persecute you. Not persecute you in the way that we see it was happening here in the days of, of, uh, of Peter in the Bible days where people were beaten and likely jailed for their faith. Or what's going on in parts of China even now as people stray away from the state religion of Buddhism and choose to worship Jesus. But a persecution from the sense of people will talk bad about you and think less of you because of your faith in Jesus. And so Peter is writing to a people that are suffering because they're just being open with their faith. And so Peter's exhortation to us in this letter is simply this. Be public. Live a public faith out loud so that people, without even hearing your words, would notice that you're a follower of Jesus by the way, by your conduct, by the way that they see you going about your life. And that really is what he is exhorting us in in all of these words of first Peter. And so when, when we get to verse 15, this is one imperative of over 30 and an imperative in Scripture is. A writer basically telling us something that that we we should do. Peter's giving us an authoritative command. It's as if he put his hands on our shoulders and he's like shaking us a little bit. It's like this is important. In fact, this is almost urgent. You need to do this. Do what I say. I don't always tell you what to do, but in this circumstance, do what I say. And what is he telling us to do? He says, "Put Jesus on the throne of your heart." That's what he's saying. In verse 15, at least the first the first few words of it, put Jesus on the throne of your heart. If Jesus is in control of your life, then he will then you'll be compelled to speak up about Jesus and what he's done for you. That's what Peter is exhorting us to do here in verse 15. If Jesus is on the throne of your heart, then you will always be compelled to defend that for which you believe in. You know, the NIV in these first few words of verse 15 says this. It says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. I like how it it phrases that there. Not that I don't like the ESV wording. A few other Bible translations use this word. It uses sanctify, sanctify your hearts um, apart for, for Christ. The word sanctify meaning set apart. And I really think that is what God requires of us from the very beginning. Think about that. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and your soul. And in the Old Testament, it asks this words and with all of your strength. Um, God's words in the very first of the Ten Commandments was, I'm the Lord, thy God, who brought you out of Egypt. You'll have no other God before me. And then he continues that by saying, I'm a jealous God and I will visit your iniquity Uh, Not only to your generation, but to the third and fourth generation, to those who disobey me. God is jealous for himself, for his glory and for his name. And then we have 
This picture of God in the Old Testament, what he's saying to Old Testament Israel is specifically, I want to be your dwelling place. In fact, I want to dwell among you. I want to be your God in all of the all of life settings. And I want you to be my people. He invited Israel to do that. He's inviting us still today to to dwell in the midst of us. He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, that we would be his people and that we would choose him to be our God. And I think here's the thing. You know, God always gives us reason to love him. The reason that he gives us to love him is because he initiates that love. He initiates love for us through a covenant with Adam and Eve. And that covenant is seen in Noah and how God saved Noah and his eight family members through the, the flood of waters over those 40 days and nights. And then we see that that love initiated with Moses as he delivered the Israelite people out of uh, a horrible slavery in Egypt. And we see it culminating in the kingdom of David. And of course, we see the the greatness of that covenant coming to fruition in the initiating love of Jesus Christ as he incarnates himself as a man, walks on the earth and stretches his arms out on the cross to die for us. God initiates a great love for us, saying, I want to be a part of your life. I want to dwell And because God initiates great love for us, because we're in covenant with him, guess what? He demands that we reciprocate. He demands that we love him back. God's requirement for us is that we would love him, love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength and all of our might. I think the miracle of the gospel is that God opens our eyes to see his beauty and it it compels us to love him. So what's the key to honoring Christ, the Lord, as holy? Um, we talked about this last week. I think it's, it's that it's that nemesis. It's the fear of man. Really, to see what Peter's talking about here, we got to go back a couple verses in in chapter three. I'm going to read a couple verses here, starting at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, he continues, regard Christ the Lord, Christ the Lord as as holy. So Peter is exhorting us to let God be our fear, to let God be our dread. And that really is a partial quote of a verse in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter eight, verses 12 and 13. And then is as if Peter goes on to say, don't fear those who can only kill your body, but fear him who can also destroy your body and your soul, which would be a partial quote of Luke chapter 12, verses four and five. And so in our hearts, we honor Christ as holy when we simply adore Jesus. That's your start point, guys. Adoring Jesus. The more you think of Jesus, the more you're going to be will, less willing to fear what other people think of you because of your faith. And if you have no other fear but fearing God, then you're going to be compelled and willing and able and you're going to desire to talk about him in every setting, whether it's at Starbucks or McDonald's or at a football game or just sitting in your own living rooms with a person that uh, that might be your friend. So when our thoughts are of Jesus are reverent, when we rely upon his power, when we trust in the faithfulness of Jesus toward us, when we submit to his wisdom, when we imitate his holiness, when we give him the glory due his name, we're casting out fear of anybody else and we're glorying the God who loved us and saved us. You know, the, the, the focal point of this, this verse are these three words. Make a defense. Make a defense right there in the middle of uh, verse 15. And that word defense is the Greek word apologia. 
Okay, it's it's the root of the word that we get, uh, not apologize as if you're making an excuse for anything, but the word apologetic. It means to defend oneself or to 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 defend um, your others or an idea against accusations or attacks being made against it. Okay, so the thought here is that we should, as people who believe in Jesus, defend what we believe with our words, but also the way that we live. Um, apologetics answers questions like this. I mean, can I trust the Bible? Is Jesus the only way to God? I mean, how do you compare Christianity to other religions? Oftentimes we liken an apologist to someone with a big head and a big brain. And, you know, they're carrying big books and they just know everything. There's a few of you in this room. Honestly, there are. Um, but this is the deal. All of us that know Jesus and that serve him and that love him are apologists. Every time you are, you are given an apologetic every time you demonstrate your faith and open up your mouth to speak boldly about Jesus. And so in a sense, all of us here are apologists. And I think what Peter is saying here in these two verses that we're going to unpack here in a couple of seconds is, is simply this. We have an opportunity as believers in Jesus to defend our faith as an apologist would and also, when we evangelize, there's a few things that we should do. There's, there's at least four elements in this verse 15 that we should pay attention to and that we should do when we are defending our faith or when we are initiating an opportunity to be uh, gospel spokesmen for the God that we love. And the first thing that he says, be prepared, be prepared. You ever you ever. I'm laughing because I'm thinking of, of opportunity just times I've messed it up. You ever had something to do that you weren't prepared for? Taking a test. Remember those days? Um, Standing up in front of some people and you had to make a speech and Lord have mercy. You weren't ready. Um, You got a project that you're working on with some buddies and it's, you know, it's kind of a work thing. And you have to actually deliver that, you know, uh, uh, deliver what you're working on in terms of a briefing at a conference that you're going to. And for whatever reason, you I mean, you stayed up late, but it just didn't come together. I'm thinking of all the nights that I spent in school at West Point and, uh, you know, just the rack monster. Y'all know what the rack monster is? Rack, that might be a military military term. I don't know. It might be a West Point term. The rack monster is this thing that comes over you and just like attacks you. And it causes you to start bobbling and traveling. And you just like fall over on your desk and you wherever you wake up that next morning and you are in some crazy position. You have you know, saliva falling all out of your. Y'all, y'all obviously haven't experienced that. Well, the rack monsters gotten me quite a few times in life. And I've woefully been in positions where I should have been prepared to take a test, do a briefing, and I was woefully unprepared. And that really is what Paul uh, Peter's talking about. He says, don't do that. Whatever you got to do, be prepared. Be willing and able to speak up for what you believe when you have the opportunity to open your mouth and live a life out loud so that people would be able to see, uh, you know, see what you see, who you are and hear how you profess your faith. I picked my coffee up to take a drink and I took me five minutes to do that. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, um, he's saying you should know the central message of Christianity. What's the central message of Christianity? It's the gospel. 
It is the message that God has has sent his son to die for us, to live a perfect, you know, to live a perfect life, to die for us on the cross in our place for our sin. And we can articulate that those the words of the gospel in really four, four quick steps. Here's the storyline. God is the creator of heaven and earth. Genesis 1 1 says in the beginning, God made heaven and earth. He made it all. OK. Uh, in the beginning, this this same God, I mean, he's perfect. He's holy. He's worthy of worship. And he's so holy that he cannot tolerate sin. He hates sin so much so that he's going to punish sin. He doesn't necessarily punish it in this life, but he will punish it at some point if you are a sinner with unaccounted for sin in your life. That's what the first point of the gospel message is. The second point will be this, is that God put the pinnacle of his creation on the earth as as human beings. Adam and Eve were told to have dominion over all of God's great, great creation. And he told them one thing. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, the first human beings on the planet, they couldn't they couldn't do that. It wasn't in them to do it. They didn't. They failed. And they uh, Eve was deceived by Satan coming in the form of a serpent. She picked the fruit, ate it, gave some to her husband, Adam, and sin entered into them. And sin has entered into all of the world. Not only human beings, everyone born of man is born uh With inherited sin and inherited guilt, we're all guilty before God because he's holy and requires perfection. But we are sentenced to die. That's why we have death. You ever wonder why death is so hard, why we grieve so much at death and why? I mean, there's sadness and remorse and it just tears us apart when a close family member or anybody dies because death is the enemy. Death is an enemy, according to scripture. And it wasn't intended to be that way in the beginning. But sin has caused that to be. And so Romans 3.23 tells us that all of us have sinned. Since Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's original sin in the Garden of Eden, everyone born of man has inherited sin and inherited guilt. There's nothing you can do to escape it. And the penalty for our sin is, is death. But God in his Great love, his great grace and the the great wisdom that he has, has has given us an opportunity to redeem ourselves. In fact, he redeems us and he does that by incarnating himself in the form of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who's existed in eternity. He becomes a man. God puts on flesh. He grows up, born as a baby, grows up, walks our roads, eats our food, drinks our drink, suffers the life that we suffer. And by God's plan, he goes on just pinned on the cross by people like you and I. And God kills him and God kills him that Jesus, this this God man might incur in his body the penalty that we're due because of our sin, because of our inherited sin and our inherited guilt. That 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 really is the message that you should that you should be prepared to share. But I would tell you these words and these alone aren't enough to save someone. These words and these alone aren't enough to extend someone's salvation and get them off track from going to uh, a life destined to the uh, of God's punishment into a life of eternity with God. 
The, the next and last step has to be that we will respond, that we will respond by asking God for forgiveness and trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our, of our sins. And that really is the, the message of the gospel. This is this is salvation. This is the gospel. These four steps. And Peter is really saying in a nutshell, be prepared, be prepared, not necessarily to perfectly give this storyline, but be prepared to tell parts of it uh, as as articulately as you can so that those who don't know about God and about your faith in Jesus can can understand um, their lot in life, their sin and God's provision to die in their place for their sin. The second thing he says is be reasonable. And this isn't intuitive, but really what he means by that is to be thought through. To, to think through your faith and be able to reason with someone else about why you believe such that it makes sense. Let me get, illustrate this in, in this way. Pretend that you are on the, the beautiful island of Hawaii. OK, you're 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 part of the government shutdown. You got furloughed and you're going to use a little bit of your I shouldn't be laughing. You're going to be using a little bit of your your savings to go and treat yourself to time off since you you're forced to have time off. So you're on the beautiful island of Hawaii. Little known, uh, unbeknownst to you, um, one of the mountains there is about to erupt. And so, in fact, you're out on a leisurely stroll. You're just out in the middle of nowhere. A mountain behind you, volcano erupts. You see lava spewing all over the place, so much so that it's like pressing toward you. And you're running, you're running, you're running, you're running. All of a sudden you see a chasm in front of you. You can't go anywhere, but you see four bridges. You see four bridges in front of you that will get you across uh, from where the lava is coming and across a chasm to the other side. And you look at the four bridges trying to decide which one you want to go across. One, the planks are missing. I mean, it's like, well, I, if I went on that one, I wouldn't be able to get across. The second one, all the ropes are frayed. And the third one, you're looking at it. It's like, well, all the, 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 the planks are there. The ropes seem to be good. But you look at it, it's anchored in sand. And then there's one other bridge. The planks are there. The ropes are not frayed. And it seems to be anchored in cement. I mean, which one would you take? I mean, do I have to say it? A lot of times we approach our Christian faith trying to explain to people from from perspective of, I mean, well, I feel I feel this. And this is how I mean, I just, you know, when I worship Jesus, I just have warm feelings all over. It's like taking a bath and it's like it's nice and warm. It's like. The great smells coming up. I've got candles on the side. And honestly, I'm not saying that Christianity and our faith is is not that. I guess we can love God in that way. But you know what? There's some reason to why we believe what we believe. There's some historicity behind this Bible that we hold up and it, it can be proven in the history of our secular world. There is reason to believe why you believe. So much so that Peter is saying, be reasonable, be able to present a thought out conclusion based upon careful, honest investigation and examination of what you believe. Peter says, be prepared to do that. Thirdly, he says, be hopeful. You know, our evangelism, our evangelism should be filled with joy and we should be some of the most hopeful people on the planet. Think about this. God died for you. Simply because you trusted in what his son did on the cross. Jesus stretched out his arms. And if it was only one person on the whole planet, he would have done it for you. 
in this, Peter says, if in this life uh, you only have hope, then you have a, a vain hope. What is our hope? Our hope is in not only this life, but the life to come. Look, listen to these words. We have hope of a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. We have hope of eternal salvation. First Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope in the gospel. Romans chapter five, verses two through five. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who has been given to us. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Last verse. Romans 6, uh, 15, 3, uh, 15, 13. May the God of our God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may have hope. We have something to hope for other than just the meaningless everyday nature of life today. We have hope for a future. We have hope for our great salvation that we've been given that leads into eternity. And we have hope in the great gospel that God has saved us by. The fourth thing that Peter exhorts us in is to be gentle and to be respectful. What he's saying is don't be arrogant. Don't belittle those who might come to you and ask about what you believe and why you believe it. But approach the, the matter with gentleness and respect. Um, don't ram it. Don't try and ram this down their throat is what he's saying. You ever notice now, parents are going to get mad at me. I'm going to say it anyway. All right. You ever seen uh, a couple with a young kid and they're trying to give him some green mush? You know that? I, I don't know why. Why is it that baby food makers crush up that broccoli and mash those peas and put them in a little ugly jar? And, and like they could at least color it like bright yellow or something. But and so you got this kid and and you know how parents get. They got the smile on their face and you, you kind of open your mouth when you want your kid to open your mouth. He's like. Here, Johnny, come in, have some of this nasty green mush. And the kid's like, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. And the kid turns his, turns his head, he's like, mm-mm. And the, the parent is just trying to, and they're in public, so they're just trying to nicely feed this kid um, because they don't want anybody to, you know, to see how you do it at home. Um, <laughs> this is what Peter's saying. He said, don't shove that nasty green mess, <laughs> green mess, mess in somebody's face as if, you know, they're going to they don't even know what it is quite yet. He said, you got to be gentle and respectful when you're giving someone something that they don't even know is good for them quite yet. You know, Jesus treated unbelievers with great respect and we should do the same with those that we are coming across, especially those that we have an opportunity to talk with about what we believe and why we why we believe it. We aren't trying to impose our views on people. You know that? Sometimes we come from we come from the perspective of I'm going to force you to believe. And before we end this conversation, you're going to say in Jesus name. Amen. I mean, sometimes we have that adamant perspective that they're going to believe what I believe and they're going to believe it now. 
And I think Peter's saying you don't have to have that perspective. Um, we can't force anyone to believe and we should not try. All that we can do is tell them good news. We are heralders of the great good news that God has come. He's lived. He's died for people who really need his love and his affection. And people have the, the opportunity and the, 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 the right to say no thank you. Um, I don't know what that means for all you parents who are trying to give your kids that green mush, but I'll just leave you to handle that for yourself. Uh, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, I think having a good conscience basically means to live open lives. It means to, to, to let how you live um, every day in all the normal settings of your life be just it, let it be for people to, to see uh, the things that you love and that you adore, that being that being God. And this should happen, especially among uh, those who don't believe, those who are non-Christians. You know, we shouldn't be dissuaded by the ridicule of our opponents. Uh, we are going to be opposed. There's going to be people who mock us and make fun of us and um, think little of us because we believe in Jesus. Rather, we should. You know, we should be willing to answer the questions about our faith in Jesus. I think we should be honest. You don't have to feel like you have to have a perfect uh, reply for everything that someone challenges you with in regards to your faith. If you don't know it, don't, don't just say, oh, well, you know what? I can't give you an exact answer for that, but I'll look it up. And I mean, if we can have coffee later, go out to lunch. Um, I mean, we can revisit this. Don't feel like you have to give a textbook answer and everything that you have to say, uh, have to say in regards to your faith and about Jesus has to be absolutely perfect. God is not asking you for that. I think the other thing is we have to remember that we have a Holy Spirit that's right there. Um, and he, he does this neat thing. The Holy Spirit takes our words. And as they're being communicated, they're going through the airwaves and he is um, he is sometimes translating what you're saying and the right things are falling upon the ears and the heart of the listener. I think, you know, I'm grateful that sometimes y'all are missing the crazy things I'm saying up here. And the Holy Spirit is fortunately just taking it, translating it and giving you what you need for that particular day. I mean, I actually pray that for you every day that God takes some nugget of what I say, translate it through the airways and make it so that it would be that thing that all of the people need to hear rightly for them for that day. I'm going to give let me give you some practical helps in evangelism. And uh, I would tell you that this whole sermon here has been a collaboration between me and the evangelist himself, Peter McCarthy. So some of these are are Peter's thoughts that I'm sharing with you. The first thing, um, you know, many of us know the answer to this question. What must I do to be saved? We can answer that. I mean, you might not be able to give all the scripture verses and articulate them exactly how they're supposed to be. But, you know, all of us know in our hearts, you know, that thing that it takes to to, to get saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says, and you'll be saved. But many of us just we just have a difficult time beginning gospel conversations about Jesus with people. And that either is because we don't know enough. We, we think we don't know enough or uh, just a little bit of fear of man. So I want to help you. Um, get that right, uh, or at least, you know, be on the way to that. And here are a few implications. The first is be patient. Trust God. You know, be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with the process. Trust in God's sovereignty. You know, our role more than not is moving people along a continuum from um, one or two on this scale of of where they are in their 
in their understanding of who Jesus is, their interest in spiritual things to um, a little bit further down. You guys look to the right where eight and nine, they are interested in hearing about God, the gospel, faith, their sin and how I reconcile that. We are a cog in the wheel that sort of keeps the keeps this thing going. And you shouldn't punish yourself because you didn't seal the deal. You didn't make a convert. You didn't make a person believe you really are a conduit, a part of, of God's plan, a part of his purposes. And I mean, can you see yourself as that you are the, the, the opportunities that you take to share what you know about your faith with Jesus is a part of the process and part of the purposes in someone else's life that might move them a little bit further to the right in their in their understanding and in their desire to know Jesus. I love what Paul says in Colossians four. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. The second thing I would tell you is sometimes less is more. You know what? My wife tells me this every week. Sometimes less is more. What I mean by that is you you ever been near a person and you I mean, you see the transaction going on. It's a person who loves God with all their heart. They're passionate about it and they're talking. They're just trying to convince the person, shaking them, trying to, you know, try. You're going to believe what I believe or else. And you just wish. I mean, you're saying to yourself, I just wish you would shut up. Seriously, um, sometimes less is more. We should say that to ourselves sometimes. Um, We have to realize that when we present the gospel, we're asking someone to take a completely different worldview into account. You ever thought about that? A person that doesn't know God, doesn't know about faith, sin, Jesus is is not immersed in a Christian worldview. They're thinking totally different about most things in life. And we have to realize that we're asking them to consider setting aside all that they believe about how the world works and how life works and to receive what we're saying about the origin of the world and of people and of the God that we serve. And that's that's a huge leap. It's a huge leap. And we have to extend some grace there. And every once in a while, less really is more by you giving a little bit of the story and then asking, well, can, you know, I mean, can we return to this at some other point? Uh, obviously, if you have the opportunity and this is a chance meeting and it's just God just impressed upon you to share your faith with somebody that you meet in the metro at the mall you know, at some other setting and you have the opportunity to to talk fully about the gospel, then you should oh, by all means take that. But if it's an ongoing relationship, someone that, you know, someone that you have an will have an opportunity to just come back to at a, a, a at a different point, at a different setting and unfold why you believe what you believe, then you should you should feel comfortable doing that. You know, most people need time to think about what we're presenting you know, that said, you got to trust the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually working in not only your words, but they're work- the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of the people that are on the other end of your conversation. And the Holy Spirit really is the ultimate evangelist. He knows what you should be saying. Again, he's translating what you're saying and he knows what the other person needs. He's tearing down their inhibitions and making them um, ready to receive that good news that you are delivering. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit opens blind eyes, blind eyes. The Holy Spirit melts hearts 
And the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is his pace is always right. You know, when we get ahead of ourselves, when we are introducing a concept that the person is not ready for, the Holy Spirit is is in some unique way slowing it down so the person can receive it or at least making their 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 heart and their even their body posture pliable so that they would be really willing to enter into this conversation again at some other point. You know, I think. We need to find ways of presenting the gospel that are that are that are on the opposite end of this continuum. Instead of coming in, approaching a person from a Christian worldview, we need to be at the totally opposite end of the spectrum. A lot of times we approach evangelism and apologetics from the perspective of, well, everybody wants to know um, why does God allow suffering? Why, um, you know, is Jesus the only way to God? Um, Those those kinds of questions. And I I mean, really? Did you wake up this morning thinking about those kinds of things? Uh, my contention is, of course, most of the people that really are far away from God, they're they're not interested in God and Jesus and they're not, they're not thinking about him all the time. They're at the other end of the spectrum, just worrying about life. They wake up in the morning like, I mean, how, does, how do my clothes look? I mean, is my gut sticking out of my butt? Is it all right in this outfit? Think about it. Did you wake up this morning thinking about those things? Be honest. Um, what else do you think about? Where, where are my car keys? That, we, we ask those questions of ourselves. Right about now, it's 11, 11, 10. I mean, y'all are looking down saying, I mean, what's for lunch? And then some of you are thinking, I mean, when is Jeff going to shut up? Those are the questions that we ask in life. We, 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 even those that are most spiritual in this room aren't always thinking about God and Jesus. And so we have to know those people that we're entering in, especially those who have their mind, their mind is far away from God, aren't necessarily thinking from our Christian worldview. And we have to we have to be able to fit the gospel into the questions that they're thinking about. And I would tell you. We can. There's a way for the gospel to answer those mundane questions of every day. Where are my car keys? How do I look in my outfit? That's the gospel that we need to be preaching. Um, lost my place. The third thing, and the last thing in, re- in regards to this, I would say, is we got to aim for the heart. Um, one of my favorite authors and uh, pastors, speakers is Paul Tripp, Dr. Paul Tripp. If you get any of his books, they would be well worth your effort. But he says that the heart is the the central causal core of your personhood. Um, We live from the heart, folks. And so the way that you feel, the way that you act, the way that you um, the way that you manifest anything in your life, your hopes, your desires, your loves, your failures and all the way all the ways that those manifest. It comes from your heart. Okay, we there's a lot of things that affect our behavior, our circumstances, how we grew up, those things that we experience in life. But the thing that makes all of us similar, that that connects us all, whether you're a believer in Jesus or someone who's very far away from God, is that we live from our hearts and our behaviors are controlled by our hearts. And so. When we're sharing the gospel, I would this is another sermon for another day and we don't have time to unpack this. But the the thing that you need to most dearly connect to people who are far away from God is this idea of they live from their heart and everything that they do comes from their heart. And the gospel needs to answer the question of why do I do the things that I do um, in the world, whether it's feeling a loving a desiring, hating, sinning. And the gospel does do that. 
How do we grow in this? Um, I would tell you simply, we got to get more Jesus. Get more Jesus. Um, there's a popular song on the gospel channel, uh, gospel station right now. Um, Praise 104, something like that. Praise DC. Um, Erica Campbell of the Grammy award winning gospel duo, Mary Mary. She sings a song. Uh, I need just a little more Jesus. And uh, it's a, it's a touchy, touchy tune. Um, it's one of those throwback kind of songs. I mean, you just get, you, I can hear it in my old uh, back, uh, black Baptist church days, wood floor. Um, you know, the old folks just stopping their foot on the, on the ground and just, uh, you know, stopping their hands. And it's, it's popular today. And I like the song, but I would tell you, I was very critical of it when I first heard it because it just sounded so simple. It's like it, 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 there was nothing to it. The words are, I need just a little more Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, well come on, what, what, give me, what's the theology in that? But the more I hear it, the more I realize there's a whole bunch of theology in that. And I would tell you, all of us sitting here in this room, plus all the people out there, we need just a little more Jesus. What do I mean by that? We need a theology that understands who Jesus is. We need a love for the God of the Bible that makes us passionate enough um, it's passionate enough that we would, I mean, we couldn't help as as Paul, as Peter and Paul said in, in Acts chapter four, that I can't help but proclaim who he is. We need just a little more Jesus. We need more of his word. We need more of his love. We need more Jesus. The second thing I would tell you, um, how do we grow in this? We, we got to practice. We have to practice. How do you get better at anything that you do in life, whether it's sports or speaking in public or the things that you do at your job or or, you know, parenting? You do. You do it. You practice it. And here's my challenge to you. If you have problems talking about Jesus amongst Christian folk, there's no way you're going to be able to talk about Jesus about around non-Christian folk. It's just true. And so. That's that's the beauty of our community groups. Um, it, when you're in community with other people, you know, one of the things that we do is we fellowship, we eat some food, but we open the Bible, we read it and we talk to each other about Jesus. And we rehearse what God has done for us, that this great God of the Bible it's not so ethereal that he's out there, but he's actually come. He's dwelling in me and he brings this all all alive. He just makes it all alive. And he makes me want to to get into the what he said about himself and and learn about him more. So we need to get more Jesus. We need to practice. And the other thing I would tell you, we just need to be convinced. And I simply mean by that when you're convinced that Jesus saves souls, that he heals hurts, that he wipes away tears, that he loves you unconditionally, that he satisfies all your longings, that he can change your life, that he gives you eternal life. When you are convinced about Jesus in regard to those things for yourself, you're going to want to share that. Lastly, I would tell you, what's the next step after you evangelize? It's inviting people in the community. What do you do when you uh, and I'm not saying you got to seal the deal and make a convert. But I think one of the ways that we can be effective at helping people who are far away from God, but kind of interested in the God that we serve is just by bringing bringing them around the Christian community. What's going to happen? They're going to see us falling and failing. They're going to see the gospel at work, the great grace of God that brings people who come from diverse walks of life, different social stratuses. Um, They're going to see us in a dysfunctional family, but they're going to see us loving each other by the great grace of God. 
And I would tell you that's going to be a greater witness for them to see than anything that we can say. They're also going to hear gospel conversation. They're going to hear us talking about the grace of God at work in each other's lives. I'll conclude with this. What's the best way to evangelize? The answer is simple. There is there is none. Okay, so whether you're street preaching, knocking on somebody's door, handing out a track, giving some ice cream and telling somebody Jesus loves you and there's no strings attached or you have an opportunity to sit down with someone, show an act of kindness and over coffee or or lunch unfold. There are the particulars of the gospel from the scriptures. There's no way. There's no best way to evangelize. The only wrong way to evangelize is if we don't do it. So I encourage you, use your life. Live it out loud. Live it publicly, as Peter uh, exhorts us to. But when you're when you're given the opportunity to tell of the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. I mean, say what you say, what God gives you to say and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to take that and use it for his glory in the life of someone else that needs to know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need a little more Jesus. And that's my prayer for all of us here today, that you would give us. The gift of yourself, God, the greatest gift that any of us could give, not only for ourselves, but for those who are just going through life through the motions is the gift of your son. So, God, I pray that Jesus would be more real to all of us in this room. I pray that we would rehearse for ourselves. We would practice with ourselves, reminding ourselves of of God's holiness and of our sin that, Lord, we would remind ourselves, practice saying to ourselves of how God's great grace has come and he's given us redemption by living a perfect life. Jesus submitting himself to just bad men, sinful men like us in this room and dying on a cross that he, Jesus, might take in his body the penalty that we're due because of our sin. And that for simply believing in Jesus, that he would forgive us of our sin, that he would reconcile us back into relationship with God the Father, and that he would gift us with eternal life. So give us Jesus. God, I pray that we would be so compassionate, so passionate for you and for your gospel, that we would be compelled, like Peter and the apostles walking during the Bible days, to to speak and live for you. Would you do that for us, Jesus? We place in your great name.